This is James Coover with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District with your extension crop report. The fields are drying out again after what was an extended period of rain. For the most part, we have shipped into the common June weather of mostly hot and dry with some random humidity storms that are hard to predict. But the effects of weeks of wet weather can be seen in the cornfields with yellow corn in the flooded areas that will hopefully soon recover. In the early planted soybean fields, those are going to have bigger issues. Many of the soybean fields were emerging under completely saturated conditions, and we are just now able to see the full effect. Saturated conditions can reduce germination directly, drown young plants, and give vectors for diseases. Research has shown that saturated conditions for 48 hours reduce germination by 30 to 70 percent. The seedlings that do make it through can be damaged and slowed down as well. For the fields that were already germinated and had a little growth, Young seedlings at V2 and V4 can survive three to four days of waterlogging, depending on the variety. Generally, this isn't even across the field, and can leave four stands in the terrace channels and long field edges. For the plants that do make it, their slowed growth early makes them unlikely to catch up to the drier parts of the field. Unfortunately, our soils tend to make matters worse. Our heavy clays and poor drainage means that soybean roots are affected longer and oxygen deprivation is worse. And now, on to the young soybean diseases, nearly all of which like flooded conditions. The three most common are phytophthora, cytochondria, and pythium root rots. Pythium prefers cooler, flooded conditions, while phytophthora and cytochondria prefer warmer temperatures. Out of the three, we are most likely to see phytophthora. It seems like this is the most common foil fungus involved when there are areas of dead soybean seedlings within a field. Generally, this fungus affects wet areas and follows field contours, but this is not always the case. I've seen plenty of cases where these rotting off issues were occurring in troubled spots with some drainage while wetter areas nearby were fine. Many of these diseases don't cause any absolute loss either, but can hang on to a soybean plant slowing it down and cause nutrient deficiencies in a long time. Like most diseases, certain varieties are more resistant than others. Seed treatments will have helped for a couple of weeks after planting, but eventually those seed coatings wear off. Other than varieties and seed coatings, not much can be done because these are below ground diseases. Often, Phyllotophria won't cause much overall yield loss because it is only affecting a 10 to 20 foot diameter area. It does look bad though because these areas of complete loss are easy to see later in the season when the rest of the field has complete canopy cover. If you suspect issues with soil diseases, we can always send them off the sickly plants to the plant diagnostic lab for identification. If there are any unknown problem areas in your field, please give me a call at 620-724-8233. This has been James Coover with your Extension Crop Report. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. Hi, this is Wendy Powell, your Livestock Production Agent from the Wildcat Extension District. In a picturesque world, summer is the time when your livestock enjoy good weather, good pastures, and easy living. But to be frank, summer also brings hot weather, flies, pink eye, anaplasmosis, and then more flies. And rest assured, the fly wars are on here in the four counties of the Wildcat Extension District. Fly populations have been steadily building and from now until fall we will see peak fly problems. Instituting some sort of fly control program 
like sprays, rubbers, or fly tags will help decrease fly populations that spend a lot of time on cows, such as horn flies and some face flies. Stable flies and other biting flies don't spend much time on an animal, so you'll need to focus on environmental controls too, not just topical treatments. One of the best ways to eliminate stable flies is to remove sources of organic matter that create breeding grounds. Cleaning areas where cattle were fed during the winter and drying down manure by spreading it or dragging fields will help reduce fly populations. Good fly control can not only limit impacts on production from bites, but it can also play a role in heat stress. Because livestock will group up to avoid flies, heat becomes a larger concern during these hot summer months. This is also the time of year when pink eye problems are peaking. In calves, this is due to the numerous face flies taking advantage of the declining colostral immunity coupled with the situation of still developing immune systems. Add in the taller forage with pollen that can irritate eyes and you have a recipe for calves with eye problems. To beef up immune systems, a booster dose of pink eye vaccine would be good to give now. Plus, focus on fly control in calves. Many of the fly control methods for cows, like fly tags or oilers, may not reach the calf. Having some face wipes at the entrance of creep feeders may improve control. The increased biting fly population is also spreading anaplasmosis organisms around if it's in or near your herd. Susceptible cows may develop clinical signs such as anemia, jaundice, sometimes sudden death. Although hornflies can transmit some anaplasmosis, the biggest concern is stable flies and ticks. So normal fly control has limited value. If you're in an endemic area, you may want to consider having a conversation with your veterinarian about a veterinary feed directive for chlorotetracycline, also known as CTC, to protect your cow herd. A successful fly control program requires proper identification of the pests causing negative impacts, determining the best control method, and following label directions on the product to get optimum control and decrease the chance of resistance. Give me a call for help with any of the products available for control of livestock pests. I can be reached at the Altamont Extension Office, 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report. This is a David Scrantz, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your K-State Research and Extension report. Not all aquatic weeds are bad. In fact, vegetation in and around a pond is valuable for fish and wildlife habitat. It can also help reduce stream bank erosion. But when vegetation grows too abundant, it becomes weeds and some control is necessary. When considering aquatic weed control, keep these two points in mind. Prevention is always better than treatment, and you must identify the weeds before you consider control. Keeping weeds from ever becoming a problem is much better than trying to treat and control them once they become established. The two best strategies for prevention include 
reduce fertilizer runoff into your pond, and reduce the amount of silt running into your pond. A great option for controlling both issues is to maintain a grass buffer strip around your pond. This continuous barrier of permanent grass helps to intercept soil particles and nutrients as they wash off surrounding fields or lawns. It also helps to limit sediment washing into your pond, which causes shallow slopes and water depth and more weed issues. Grass is also a great sponge for absorbing fertilizers like nitrogen and phosphorus. It helps prevent these chemical elements from running off from surrounding areas and into the pond. Less fertilizer in the water means less algae and other weed problems. Take a serious look at what you can do to prevent problems. It will be significantly cheaper than dredging out a silted-in pond or applying some of the weed controls. The first step in controlling algae and other aquatic weeds is to properly identify the weeds in the pond. If you miss this step, you will likely waste money on products that don't work and delay getting control of the situation. If you are unsure, of what type of weeds you are dealing with, you can bring a sample into our extension office for identification. Options for pond weed control are mechanical and physical, which is pulling, raking, or physically removing weeds is a good way to control small quantities. Biological, which is grass carp, a non-native plant-eating fish that will reduce the abundance of some aquatic plants. However, grass carp are not the silver bullet in terms of aquatic plant management, given their preference for specific types of plants that can limit their usefulness. Grass carp may also increase the occurrence of algae blooms as a result of their redistributing nutrients in the water. Herbicides are another option. There are a number of herbicides that control aquatic weeds, but you must match the correct product with the correct weed. This has been a Dave Strauss with your K-State Research and Extension Report. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. Some people have called in recently complaining about weird bumps or abnormal growths in your trees, concerned that it might be a fungus. In all of these cases, these bumps have actually been galls. Depending on the species of insect, these galls will form on the blade, at the bud, or on the branch. Yes, that's right. Galls are actually signs that an insect species has taken up residence in your tree. The insect could be a wasp, a gnat, or a midge, depending on the species of tree. One of the most common galls that you will find in our area is the oak apple gall. The gall is about the size of a golf ball and forms when a wasp lays its eggs in the buds of oak trees. A chemical is released that causes excessive cell division, forming the gall that the eggs will nest in and the larva will feed in. The gall will remain, and oak limbs with many galls can be weighed down. While this can cause minimal limb breakage, galls are largely cosmetic and will not impact the long-term health of the tree, especially if the gall only forms on the leaf. One example of a leaf gall is the hackberry nipple gall. Much like other galls, the insect develops inside the gall and then emerges as an adult. Most insects that form these galls will be minor nuisances but not major problems. The aforementioned oak gall wasp is solitary and avoids humans, 
while hackberry gnats will not form colonies. That, combined with the minimal damage to the trees, means that you won't need any control methods and can instead use the galls as a conversation starter with curious visitors. Galls are just one form of foliar problem that affects trees. The word foliar means relating to leaves. Often, pests that attack the leaves will only affect the leaves and not any other part of the plant. If this affliction is severe enough, it can cause leaf drop, which causes problems in two ways. It depletes the energy of the plant, and can trick gardeners into thinking the plant is dead. The plant needs leaves for photosynthesis, and without the leaves, it can't produce new energy. Sugars in plant cells can be broken down as an emergency energy source, so one or two defoliations won't hurt most plants. However, it is important to control any recurring diseases like anthracnose in sycamores or fire blight in pears so that the trees don't begin a death spiral. Defoliation also potentially tricks the gardener into thinking part or all of the plant is dead. This is especially common if the defoliation happens late enough in the growing season for the plant to prematurely enter dormancy. The plant could be unnecessarily pruned or even removed if there is no sign of leaves. One easy way to check the health of defoliated plants is to flex test outer branches or twigs. If the twig flexes, that part of the plant is still getting water and nutrients and the leaves are the only issue. If the twig snaps in the flex attempt, then that part of the plant has been cut off from water and nutrients and would likely need to be pruned back. The most accurate way to assess any damage is to wait and see what leafs out again in the following growing season. For more information on today's topic, contact your local extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or by email at jr637 at ksu.edu. Once again, this has been Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Hort Report. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.